morning, Calvary. So the text that we're going to be looking at today was already read um, by uh, Joe Fantuzzo a little earlier. So I'm not going to read the entire thing again, but uh, one thing that I'll point out, and then we'll have a word of prayer begin, is that as we look at John 13, well, when you look at the whole book of John, you see a marked division, and this is the division. In the first 12 chapters, we see that Jesus is doing miracles. He is First, he's making these statements, these I am statements. If you look through, that's a a theme through John. And he's also performing miracles. John presents these miracles so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's presenting these miracles as proof. One of the things that you see, the main theme that you see with these uh, miracles and all the things that Jesus says is that he is constantly rejected to the point of them wanting to kill him by his own. He is constantly rejected by the Israelites. And so the focus in the first 12 chapters is this public ministry where the the call goes out to many in the nation and the vast majority reject him. There's even uh, probably the most famous chapter about that is John chapter 6. And we see many are surrounding him. And then when he begins to talk about what it really means to follow him, they all leave, and he's only left with a few disciples. But in chapter 13, we see a difference. We see now the shift goes from this public ministry to now this private, intimate time with his disciples. And so the next four chapters, we see him teaching them different lessons. We see him doing things that they would remember and that would even find their ways into other books of the Bible, lessons that were, were taught here. And so as we go through this, just keep that in mind. This is the beginning of Jesus now turning directly to the, to the disciples. And we only get to see it for one night. But we get four chapters of it, ending in chapter 17, which is considered Jesus' high priestly prayer for um, all of his disciples, including us. So as we look at his word, just consider that how John presents it, because it is important in what plays out here. And I'll try to highlight some of the things as as we go through. Um, I'll also say that I'll be standing here next week as well, uh, preaching through the same text. So there's some things that I'm going to walk through pretty quickly this week that I'm going to talk about in detail next week. I'm saying that now so I don't have to constantly say, I'll talk about that next week. I'll talk about that next week. Um, So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then let's look what he has to say to us in his word. Uh, Father and God, we just want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that we can come, we can read, we can hear it, we can understand what you have for us, God. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to look to different gurus and figure out which version of mysticism is the right one to follow. But we have the words that you have for us right here. And I just pray, God, that as we go through it today, that you will guide us, that you would direct us in how we should live our lives, how we should look at ourselves, and how we should ultimately view you and each other. So I pray, God, that you will speak right now, Lord. 
and that you will be with us during this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, there's a lot going on this night. There's a lot going on that John highlights for us. Going to, and it's John 13, going to verse 1, he says, now before the feast of the Passover, that's the first thing. So the feast of the Passover is happening. That's huge in Israel. And there were a lot, because it was Passover, there were a lot of things going on in the nation of Israel. And we even see, we don't have the time to look at it, that, well, of course, God lined up the, his crucifixion happening during Passover because Jesus is the true Lamb of God. But we see that in the minds of those who are plotting to kill him, they decided to take him now, and they even wanted his body off the cross after he died because it was Passover. And so it's Passover. And if you don't remember what Passover was, it commemorates God delivering Israel out of Egypt, and he sent the last plague to Egypt, which was the death of of the firstborn in every house. But he delivered special instructions to the Israelites and said that if you take the blood of a lamb and that you cover your doorposts with this blood, then the death angel will pass over you. As we get the name Passover. And so, of course, that's also a pointing to Christ that death will pass over us as if we're covered by the blood of the true lamb. Jesus was about to be crucified, as I mentioned. He's going to be arrested this night and the next day be crucified. If you're thinking about the timeline, this is Thursday evening, and he's crucified Friday afternoon, morning and afternoon. So it says, now before the feast of the Passover, then it says, Jesus knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father. So his hour had come that he would be crucified. He's also going back to the Father. Then we see something else in verse 2. During supper, the devil, had, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. And Jesus knew this. So all these things are going on. This isn't just a typical evening dinner. It's the feast of the Passover. And he's celebrating it with his disciples. And if we look at the account in, in Matthew, he even says, this is the last time. This is the last time I'm going to have this meal with you and drink the fruit of the vine with you on this side of heaven. So all of these things are going on. And as we move into uh, verse 4, What do we see happening? All of these important things. And it says that Jesus, verse 4, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. The beginning of verse 5 says, then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. This has been so far probably the most important night of their lives. And their master their Lord, who is about to leave them, takes time to wash their feet. And, and, and the picture of him getting up is one of humility. You could just see him 
just, just they, they're reclining at this table. He gets up. He takes off his, his outer garment, or more, more like this, but today we would probably take off a, a, a jacket or, or a suit, a suit, a blazer. And then he goes, he gets a towel, and then he just wraps it around his waist like an apron. This is God on earth. And just picture this humility. He didn't make a big scene about it. He didn't say, hey, John, your feet look kind of dirty over there. What's, what's, what's that about? Let's get this together. We got to eat this. He didn't do that. He just quietly got up to serve them. Now, why was this important? Why did he have to wash their feet? Well, there were a couple things. One, the main mode of transportation was walking. Two, they wore sandals. You know, they didn't have sneakers and shoes like, like we do. And the roads were very dirt, not just dirty, but they were dusty. They were dry and dusty. And so you would be clean, but as soon as you start walking, you would, you would get dirty. And so what would happen is, let's say, a friend invited you over to their home. You know, you walk on these roads. You come there. You look in your best, but your feet are dirty. And as part of typical common hospitality, there will be someone there to wash your feet before the meal. Now, who usually washed feet? It was typically a servant, but not just a servant. It was the lowliest servant. It was seen as one of the most degrading jobs that you could have. And I mean, you can imagine that today touching people's feet, dirty feet that have probably walked miles to get there. I mean, I'm sure you guys all took a bath this morning. I'm not touching any of y'all feet. I just, and let's just make that clear in general. I'm not up here preaching to say that we're going to have a foot washing ceremony after the, after the service. But even if we did, I'd probably wait till everybody's was clean and I'd get a clean one and get that. Or maybe i just only get my wife's and that's it. But that's not typically a thing that people rush to do. And actually, just for a little background, right before this happened, there was a conversation amongst the disciples. If anybody remembered, they were talking about who would be the greatest. And so that's important because we, when you look at some, how some of the homes were and how the people were, you didn't say, I'm not going to invite someone to my home simply because you couldn't afford to have a foot washer. You didn't have any servants who could wash feet. If there was no one there, the host would wash their feet, or he would provide a basin to the person and let them wash their feet. So when we see the disciples here, they could have washed each other's feet, but they were too worried about who was going to be the greatest once Jesus departs. And I can't say that I'm going to be over you and then get down to wash your feet. That's a degrading, demeaning thing that only a servant would do. So if I'm trying to stand and say, well, as soon as he leaves, I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to be the head disciple. I can't give up that posturing that I have and, and, and wash your feet. And so that's, that's what you see going on here. And so Jesus sees this. He knows this. Because he knew they had that conversation right before this. And then he just gets up and does it. 
says nothing to them about it. Now, there was a, an account in Luke, and you don't have to turn there. It's in Luke chapter 7, where uh, a Pharisee invites Jesus into his home. And Jesus is there, and then this woman comes with a, a box of perfume, um, an alabaster box. And she breaks it, and she anoints his feet with, with the oil and her tears. And then she dries it with her hair. And then the Pharisee starts thinking, well, if he knew what type of woman this was, he wouldn't let her touch him at all. And Jesus knew that. And in verse 44 of Luke 7, Jesus said, I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. One of the indictments against this Pharisee was, I walked into your home and you didn't even give me water to wash my feet. But yet someone comes in humility and goes above what you should have done and you're thinking negative about this person when she is showing this type of humility. Another thing to note about this foot washing or even the lack of a foot washer is according to Luke 22, the disciples are the one who prepared the Passover. So even if they didn't want to wash each other's feet because they wanted to argue about who was the greatest, they could have at least arranged to have a servant there to wash everyone's feet. But they didn't even do that. Another thing that I should point out, look down to verse 26 in John chapter 13. Verse 26, this is after the foot washing. Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to who? Judas. Jesus washed Judas' feet. He was there. Would you have washed Judas' feet? I just told you I wouldn't wash your feet. I'm definitely not going to wash Judas' feet. And Jesus already knew he was going to betray him. In fact, That was the sign. In verse 26, he was telling John, hey, this is how you'll know who is the one who betrays me. I'm going to dip the the morsel and then share it with him, and then you'll know that's the one. He gave it to Judas. Jesus washed Judas' feet. Now, of course, this wouldn't be a good story in the gospel especially when Jesus has given a lesson himself, if Peter didn't say something about it. And we like to get on Peter. You know, he's, he's the one that we, we pick on and everything. But if it wasn't for Peter, we would miss out on so much. There are so many things, so many conversations that happen because of Peter. There are so many things, so many truths that we learn in the Bible because of things that Peter said and did. It had to be corrected either by Jesus or even Paul later on after, after the church was founded. But in verse 6, it starts this great conversation. And that conversation is going to be the focus uh, today. So Jesus came to Simon Peter. And he, he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? 
Now, of course, the English can't really convey the emphasis here. It's more, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, I I think most, if not all of us, would have reacted that same way. I mean, all the disciples were probably there talking about it. I can't believe he's doing that. I haven't washed my feet in three days, and he's touching them. Oh, this is Jesus. This is our Lord. This is our master. We should have been washing his feet. But none of them said anything, and of course, Peter does. And Jesus understood that, the, that Peter would have these reservations. And so he doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't, he doesn't you know, before he, I, he actually called Peter Satan. You know, but he doesn't do that here. He says in verse 7, says, Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Now, listen, if anyone could get the benefit of the doubt, it's Jesus. Jesus just said, wait, you you don't understand what I'm doing right now. But you will. Later on, you'll get it, you'll understand. This isn't the first time Jesus told them that. Jesus taught them many things and said that you'll understand this. Matter of fact, John, the, the gospel of John is full of these, these parenthetical statements that John inserts to let you know that they didn't quite understand why Jesus did or said something at the moment, but they understood it after. And so he says, just, just wait a minute. Just, just relax. Just be patient. Now, this is Jesus talking to Peter. Peter is the one who saw Jesus walking on water. And said, Lord, if it's really you, call me out of the boat and I'll go walk on water too. And he did it. He actually took a few steps on water himself. So if anyone has the character and has the track record to ask for patience, it's Jesus. And if anybody should grant Jesus patience, it's Peter. But that's, that's not Peter. We wouldn't have all of this if Peter just said, okay, I don't understand it. I don't get it. But that's all right. Wash my feet. Peter actually refused to let him wash his feet. He knows who Jesus is. It wasn't a mystery at this point. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah. He knows that Jesus is God. And he refused to let God do what he said he wanted to do. Now, I know I've looked at this text a lot, and I'm supposed to be just here appreciative, but that still blows my mind right now as I say it to you. He really said, Jesus, verse 8, never shall you wash my feet. And it has the emphasis of never, ever shall you wash my feet in the original. Then Jesus says to him, still in verse 8, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, Jesus meant that in a literal sense, of course. Um, he meant that in a, in a spiritual sense. He meant that in a physical sense. If you don't obey me right now, then you're showing you're not even one of mine. 
in something this small. But just, just think about it. This was a great act of service to the, in the mind of the disciples, especially in the mind of, of, of Peter. For their Lord and Master to put a towel around his waist and wash their feet, which is something that they've seen slaves do all of their lives. And now Jesus is going to stoop down and do it. So, right, he refuses them. But think about this. If Peter wasn't willing to obey Jesus and let him serve him in this small way, then how could he possibly understand Jesus' ultimate act of service a few hours later on the cross? Jesus said, I'm going to serve you by washing your feet. And he didn't want that to happen. Well, what what would he have done without this lesson? What would he have done seeing Jesus on the cross? In fact, Peter is the one who, when they come to arrest Jesus, pulls out a dagger and cuts off the ear of one of the servants who came to arrest Jesus. So Peter still had a tough time with Jesus making this sacrifice, although he knew it was necessary. Then, of course, we get the beautiful book of 1 Peter, which we have been going through for the last year and a half, and we get to see now Peter holding Jesus up as the model of suffering. In all different situations, he points us back to Jesus and says, you have to suffer the way that Jesus suffered for us. But here, he told Jesus no. And Jesus had had to get him to realize that your small act of obedience now is just going to mirror your huge act of obedience later in watching me serve the ultimate way. In Mark 10, 45, uh, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus didn't just wash their feet here or serve people on earth by, by having wine at a wedding or healing people, bringing people from the dead. His ultimate act of service was on the cross, and that's why he came. So if you look in verse 13, Jesus says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Then in 14, if I then, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you are also to wash one another's feet. Jesus didn't say, hey, just see me as another person. Just pretend that I'm one of the servants who typically washes feet. No, he said, I'm your Lord, I'm your master. You're right to call me those things. Yet I still took the role of a servant on your behalf. And Peter finally gets it. Jesus wanted to wash Peter's feet. After hearing that, Peter now wants the whole body treatment. He wants Jesus to take him to a spa. Look at, look at verse 9. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Just do it all. If there's a blessing in obeying you and letting you serve me to, to wash my feet, to wash my hands and wash my head. You know, get, get my back while you're at it, too. I, I can't reach. 
He finally got it. Then Jesus took the conversation and turned it into a, a spiritual lesson. And Jesus said to him, verse 10, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Then he says, but not all of you, which of course is, is referring to Judas. Um, so we wanna, I want to look at this and take the first and the last part, or first and middle part sort of of what Jesus said. He who has bathed is completely clean. I want to look at it like that first, because that's really what he's saying. He who has bathed is completely clean. Now, there's one thing we should see here. In the first 11 verses, the word washed is used at least seven times. Every time it's used, it's the same Greek word. just means to, to wash your hands or wash your feet. Just a small washing, rinse something off with water. But here, in verse 10, Jesus uses a different word, he who has bathed. Some translations say he who is cleansed. And this word actually refers to taking a bath or, or fully becoming clean. And so here he takes what is just a simple task done by a slave, and he uses it to teach a monumental lesson about salvation and sanctification. The Bible uses the language of cleansing to talk about salvation everywhere. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see just a few. Jeremiah 33, 8. And I'm going to say them and I'll, I'll read them. Um, you don't have to turn unless I indicate it. Jeremiah 33, 8. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. So that's in the Old Testament, talking about, actually, the new covenant. Titus 2.14, the end of, of, of verse 13, says Christ Jesus in 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Or 1 Peter 1.22, so Peter really got it, says, since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Or Titus 3.5 says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, no, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And then, not just washing, but this washing caused transformation. It wasn't just external, of course. It was internal. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We have been cleansed. And Jesus says, He who was bathed is completely clean. There's nothing that needs to be added to our salvation. There's no, no works. And as we heard today, those who, who are here for Sunday school, there's, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can say. There's no special prayer that gets us right with God and others are, are, are 
not ones that we can't pray. There's no special formula. There's not enough money we can give. We have to come to Christ understanding that the only way of forgiveness is through Christ's death on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins that we can never pay. And then we have to repent of those sins. And then and only then are we completely clean. And that's an encouragement. That we are completely clean. Because many times, and I guess I'll, I, I, I can tell on myself a long time ago, uh, when I first became a Christian, I was uh, 17, 18, and I first got, I got saved through, through music, so, um, meaning I actually started doing things in, in a church, I started singing in, in, a, in a gospel choir, and um, actually started playing for a church before I became a Christian. But it was through that that I began to hear the gospel and grab the Bible for the first time in my life and start reading it. And I didn't really understand what salvation was. I thought it was just getting your life right. So not just me, but many of us, all the young people who I sang with and played with, I looked to them for guidance because they grew up in church, right? So every time there was an altar call, we would just get up and we would say, well, I have to come and get saved again because I cursed this guy out last week or I got into a fight yesterday. So I got to come get saved again. And I can't tell you how many times I've been saved in my life, how many times that I went up or I raised my hand when a preacher said, if anybody wants to accept Christ, I sinned again. I must be doing it wrong. If I have the Holy Spirit in me, I shouldn't be sinning at all. I used to say that too. Christians should be perfect because we have God in us. I hopefully I've grown some since, <laughs> since then. But it was just this thought that every time I sinned, every time I thought something that wasn't a godly thought, every time I didn't think on those things that Philippians 4, 8 tells us to think about, even if it wasn't a sin, I said, oh, man, if Jesus comes back while I'm in the middle of doing this, I, I don't think I'm going. You know, there was a, there's an old saying, and actually I was listening to a song this morning that has a saying in it, but uh, it was, get right or get left. And I don't know how many of you have heard, heard that. Get right or get left. So get your life right, behave right, or when Jesus comes, you'll be left. Because you're not acting as a Christian. And when Jesus comes back, what will you be doing? And that was always the thing. If we did something and we wanted to try to correct someone, we would say, if Jesus came back right now, you, what, what's, what would happen to you? Oh, okay. All right. All right. Let me stop doing that. Let me stop looking at her. Or let me stop trying to do this. Or that. You know, and that, that would be the correction. But Jesus here says, he who has bathed is completely clean. That should be an encouragement to us. That even in moments where we don't fully trust God, even in moments where we seem depressed, even in moments where we don't feel energized for service, even in moments where we get caught up in a sin, even in moments where we take revenge on someone or we think ill of someone, even in the church. If we have been cleansed, and that's an if, but if we have been cleansed, if we are in Christ, if we belong to him, then we have been 
cleansed completely. And it doesn't keep happening. It's not as if in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement, they would bring a sacrifice and they would be cleansed from all their sins from the past. But anything else they committed, they would kind of keep account of them and then have to get those sins uh, washed away in the next year or, or covered in the next year. Unless it was sins where they, they were able to, to um, have a sacrifice for them at that moment. You know, if they can afford one. It wasn't like that. Jesus is saying that you are completely cleansed. So that should be something that encourages all of us as Christians, as those who are in Christ, that if we have been cleansed, that we are completely clean. That we don't have to come like Peter and say, okay, watch me again. Now watch me again because I thought this thing or I told this person off or I went here and I shouldn't have. So that should encourage us. But then we see in the middle of the verse. And if you're like me, I'm a a visual person. And I can't just read the things on the page, you know, flatly like they are. They need to come to life for me. I like those dramatic readings of the Bible. You know, and I, I used to listen to those a lot because it just helps me remember these are real people. And, and, and they, they're not just characters that somebody wrote and made up. These were real everyday people like us. But I don't like, because I've never been to Israel, so I don't know what they, what they spoke like. I don't know, you know what they, their accents were 2,000 years ago. So I have to picture these people as if they are me and my friends. And I can just picture Jesus saying to Peter, he who was bathed, it's completely clean. But them feet, though, you got to wash those feet. You may be clean. And then he, This is the warning. You may be clean. You may be perfectly cleansed. You could have taken a bath this morning. And then you walk here, and those feet need some work. And that's true for all of us. Many times we focus on the direction or the, the work of salvation, and it's a one way. We were passive. We were saved. And, and we carry that truth over that it was only God working, and we carry that over into our sanctification, and we think that in our sanctification is only God working. And we think that as long as we just read the Bible enough, or we're constantly reading the Bible or listening to scripture, uh, listening to sermons, listening to podcasts, always feeding ourselves and feasting on the word of God, that's enough. And we don't become active participants in our sanctification. And, and I'm, I'm going to, there, there are, I, I don't think, at least anyone that I've talked to here, I don't think anyone, you know, subscribes to that, to the, uh, heresy that, that Greg preached about a few years ago, this hyper-grace movement, meaning that you do nothing and, um, you know, it's, it's all grace all the time. And there is nothing that you need to do. There is no learning. There is no putting into practice things that the Bible says. There is no trying to work out your salvation. 
that it's all just passive, that the Christian life is completely passive. I, I don't think there are many here who feel that way. I haven't talked to any, I'll say that, who, who feel that way. But I think we can just get a little, little comfortable. You know, I, I can, in this analogy, I can really picture someone saying, hey, your feet are a little dirty. You know, there's, there's something in your life that, that needs to be cleansed. No, no, no. Jesus paid it all. I'm good. Yeah, but when you talk to that person, you weren't really godly. And, but, but Jesus paid it all. I mean, I can show you. I can show you right where, where it says that, right? Romans 8.1. It says that. There's no condemnation. So why are you trying to confront me about my sin? There's no condemnation. Didn't you? You read it too, right? You need a different translation or something because it says there is no condemnation. And I think we just get, we get comfortable. But Jesus again says, but them feet though. That's the work that you still have to do. You still have to be cleansing yourself daily. He goes on to the next, in the next chapter. And in verse 15, chapter 14, verse 15, the book of John. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, we can only love Christ through the power of God. No person loves God on their own unless they're a believer, unless they're a part of God's family, a part of the body of Christ. So the if you love me, they're the same ones who have been cleansed completely, still called to keep his commandments. And you don't keep the commandments so you can be saved, but the ability to keep the commandments is proof of your salvation, is proof of your conversion. In Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, your, your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is a command. This is a command for action. This is a command for us to present our bodies. And to not be conformed, but to constantly be renewing our mind. And we look at what that, that looks like in a moment. Paul, in, in also in Romans in chapter 6, verse 13, in this great uh, discussion about sin and, and sin within the life of a believer. He says, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This is our duty. This is our responsibility. Sanctification is active. We are to be pursuing holiness. Those of you who, was in, who were in Iron Man on Friday, Professor Gordon said many times, does anybody remember? You can just shout it out. Be holy, for I am holy. 
1 Peter 1.16. Be holy, for I am holy. It's God given a command. So we have to understand we can't do this without God's power. But if we're believers, we have that power in us. And so we have to be pursuing holiness, pursuing righteousness, constantly going and washing our feet. Yes, our body is clean, but just like these people back in the day who would walk down these roads, we walk through life, and sometimes we walk into temptation. Sometimes we walk into sin. Sometimes we're just dragging things on, as the book of Hebrews calls them, weights. Not even sins, but just things that are not profitable, things that are slowing us down in the walk. And we constantly walk in these things and our feet get dirty. We have conversations with people. We have thoughts about people. And our feet get dirty. We constantly have to be cleansing ourselves. Cleansing our feet. But the rest of the body has been clean. So we see this encouragement and warning in these words of Christ. Well, how do we wash our feet? I mean, the analogy sounds nice, but what should we do with the rest of our day today and the rest of our lives? Well, that's what the whole New Testament's about, especially the epistles, how we actually live out the gospel in our everyday lives. But here's a couple of things. One, we confess our sins. So we confess our sins to God. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And here the word for confess actually means to say the same thing. So confession is us saying the same thing about our sin that God says. Having the same mindset or perspective about sin as God does. And not just about the whole big sin in general, but our particular sin. We need to hate it the way that God hates it. And we can't see it as a joke. We can't see it as something that's light. We can't see it as just not a big deal or even that's just who I am. That's just how I am. You know, I'm just a fiery Italian and that's just, that's just the way that we are. No, you're a sinner. And that's the way that you are. But you've been cleansed. So you're not a slave to that anymore. So that's who you were. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul lists more than a dozen sins, sinful states that were so big that they defined people. And he says, such were some of you in verse 11, but you have been washed. So that is not you anymore. You have the power to overcome that. You are no longer slaves to those things. But when we do sin, we confess it to God. Not so we can make it to heaven, because we've been cleansed, right? We're completely clean. But we do it so that our fellowship with God isn't broken. You know, the Bible says that we can both quench and grieve the Holy Spirit by things that we do or fail to do by attitudes that we have. And so to not be in that state, we go to God and we confess our sins. 
We also confess our sins to each other. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Now there's more than one reason for this. Of course, we will come seeking forgiveness when we sin against each other. And that's part of even what we, you know, what we do here, why we send out an email the week that we're going to celebrate the Lord's table and just remind people of the seriousness of that and examining yourselves and even trying to get things right with people where you know there's an offense. And I love it because Jesus says in Matthew that if you find that your brother has an offense against you, you're supposed to be the one to go and try to make it right. You don't say, well, he ain't come talk to me. You got a problem with me? Come say it to my face. You over there talking behind my back, come say, he ain't going to say nothing to me, fine. I ain't dealing with it. No, that's not what the Bible says. You know someone has an issue with you, you're supposed to go to them to try to make it right. You're not supposed to sit and say, well, they didn't ask for forgiveness, so I'm not even going to deal with them. I'm just not talking to them. I'm going I'm go- I'm to pray that God works in their heart. That's, that's, the, holy, that's the holy response, right? I'm going to pray that God works in their heart and moves them to ask me to forgive them. Then I'll think about what the Bible actually says about what I should do after they give me what I think I deserve. So, of course, we seek forgiveness and we confess our sins to people when we, when we sin against them. But we also should do it to seek edification and support whenever we sin against God. That's why we have fellowship with each other. We are to we encourage each other. We're to hold each other accountable. We're to bring each other's mind to Scripture. We're to be there to be practical support for people when they're going through trials. This is why we have to talk to people about what's going on. So in this one, it's not confessing our sins, asking for forgiveness, but we're Confessing to people where we are with God to get encouragement, to get support, to be support for other people. And that only happens in these small relationships. And we're going to look at that as well as another, another way that we can pursue holiness and wash our feet. What else? Read and meditate on Scripture. I mean, you knew I was going to say that one, right? Ephesians 5, 5 through 6 I mean, 25 to 26, excuse me, is talking about, and actually you can turn there. It, it's in this section, is talking about uh, relationships. And this one, now he switches to marriage and the husband's responsibility to the wife. And, uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 26. And we're told that husbands are to love their wives just as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself up for her. Verse 26. So that he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So the word we see is a means of sanctification. That's how one of the ways. One of the main ways that Christ sanctifies the church. And that husbands is our responsibility to be one of the, the tools and the agents of sanctification with our wives. It's through the word. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Again, we see that, that the word of God is something that transforms us. 
not in one moment, but in constant. You see this washing constantly, being washed with the word, thinking about it, meditating on it, acting it out, talking to others, trying to figure out what it means. Attend church gatherings. I didn't just say service because attend church gatherings, corporate worship, fellowship, other times where the, where the body of Christ assembles together. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. This is the reason. We always jump to, to verse 25. You know, when someone says, I'm not going to church, we jump to verse 25. Do not forsake the assembling of the saints. To get, and, you know, we do that, of course, with King James. You got to hit them with that because that's, that's, that's how you really get people with the word. You know, you bring up the King James, right? But, but why? Why? Verse 24 says we should be considering how to stimulate one another to love and good works. And then verse 25 says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So fellowship with other believers. The church, the times where the church specifically gathers together you know, we have family fellowship, we have home group, we have Sunday school, we have our services, we have uh, family night, we have different ministries come together. But even in times where it's not the church, a church-sanctioned official gathering, make sure that you're connecting yourselves with other believers and that you're discipling and being discipled for encouragement, for stimulation. Pray. First Peter 4, 7 says, therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Now, very recently, our pastor actually preached a message on, on this verse. And then a few weeks ago, he preached a message on, on fasting and prayer. And I would, I would suggest listening to those. But prayer, prayer is so powerful. And I'm going to talk about one one way that is in a minute. But Philippians 4, 6 says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So is anyone here anxious about anything? Are you bringing it to God? God didn't say, have you brought it to God? Are you bringing it to God continually? Bringing it to God. If you're dealing with particular sins, study what the Bible has to say about those sins and pray about those sins. And as you develop these relationships with mature believers, talk to them about those sins. You should be attacking it. Now, just just keeping with the analogy of the washing, you know, for me, if anyone knows me, like, you know, knows me, you know I hate paper. Like, I, I despise paper. I, it's 2018. Why does paper still exist? I don't know. But, fine, we have paper. Sometimes at work I have to approve things and sign things. And so I, I will sign it, and sometimes I get ink on my hand. I hate that. So I go and I scrub so hard 
to try to get the ink because I don't want it to dry and get settled in. Then you've got to wait like a day and stuff, or, or usually a week or so until, well, I won't tell you how it happens, but medically speaking, you, you, you won't see it anymore. But I just go crazy, and I'm trying to just, just, you know, just it won't come out. And I get, you know, and I'll try to grab something, and I have a little brush that you're supposed to, like, clean under your nails with or something like that. Or maybe that's what I use it for. But anyway, I'm just, like, scrubbing with it, just trying to, trying to get it out. But that should be the picture of us when we sin. We should be trying to put our sin to death. We shouldn't be saying, oh, there it goes again. I know that's just, just you know, how I am. I've always dealt with that. I've always had a problem with that. Every time you go to God, you should be asking him to remove that sin. You have the Bible. Do you know every single verse, every passage that deals with that sin? If not, then I would say that you're not trying hard enough to put that sin to death. You should know the Bible inside and out about any sin that you have or any area where you're trying to grow. You should be constantly praying to God about it. You should be talking to other people about it. Read books about it. But that should be automatically. You, a sin is identified in your life. You know what? I'm going to war. And that sin is the enemy. And I know that I already have the victory. So why wouldn't we fight if we know we already won? That's like boxing, and you know the other guy's been paid to throw the match, and you're still scared to step in the ring. Like, you, you do have to put in the work. You have to make it look like it's a good fight. You got to put in some work. I'm not telling you it's just you just show up there and say, oh, I'm with Jesus, and, and the sin is gone. You have to put in the work. But you know you already won. You know it's going to be fruitful. So why don't we do it? Is it that we love our sin too much? Is it that we really don't want it to go? That we still want it there for, for just a time, just, just so we can go back once in a while, and then we'll say, you know what? It's been two weeks. I used to do this every other day. Now I'm doing it only every two weeks. Okay, I won. I'm good. And a lot of times we get, compl- I, I've had conversations where that was the, that was the victory. I do it less often. And you know when I'll have full victory? When I get to heaven. And then I'm just content. We have to be fighting for holiness. You have to look worse than I do when I'm OCD trying to get the the pen stain out. You have to be doing everything possible to be getting rid of this sin. That means practical things as well. If you have to install software... Install software. If you have to tell somebody, then do that. If you have to give somebody access to your GPS coordinates because you know you may be tempted to go somewhere, if no one knows you're going, then do that. You know, whatever it is. When I first decided that, and I'm not definitely not saying I'm an example of anything, but when I first decided that I wanted to lose weight, one of the things I started doing was taking a picture of everything that went in my mouth. First, I would send it to somebody. Then I started doing it and actually just posting it online so everybody could see. And some of you know that, and you would come here. First, you would comment about how ugly my food looked. But after that, some of you would just say, all right, now, what was you doing with that that, uh, pie? And you said you're trying to lose weight. 
and you mad because you're stuck at this weight. But look, look at what you look at what you've been eating. But I had to do that. Because if not, I could just keep doing it. And I can say, I'm doing everything that I can. Trust me. It just won't work. This is just the way that I am. So we have to be doing everything that we can to fight against sin. We have been cleansed, but we still have that daily washing as we walk through life and we collect the dirt and the sin of life. Reflect on God's holiness. I just said it earlier, 1 Peter 1.16, he commands that we be holy, and the, the foundation of that command is his holiness. So it's not some foreign concept. We understand what holiness is because we have a holy God. We sang that this morning, that we have a holy God. Reflect on that. What does the Bible say about his holiness? Where does that song come from? Who is proclaiming God to be holy, holy, holy? And why? Find out. Understand who God is and and, and the standard that he set and the weapons that he gives us in our warfare. I mentioned this earlier, but lay aside the weights, those things that may not be sinful, but those things that still slow us down. Put them aside. I, I don't... And this is hard because what may be a weight for one person may not be a weight for someone else. And many times we say, you know what, I I can't do this particular thing because it may lead, it may be here, but it may lead me to that sin over there. And if somebody else has no problem being here and staying here, we assume that they're trying to get there to the sin. And we'll go to them many times and, 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 or we'll judge them about it from afar, but sometimes we'll go to them and, and the correction will be pretty stern and, and then the elders have to hear about it and then there's a big issue. And then, but it usually starts from you know, this idea that things that aren't, that the Bible doesn't say don't do it. It may not be wise. And you see someone doing something that's unwise, you probably can still talk to them about it. But don't confuse a weight with a sin. And we don't have time to go into everything about it now. But the Bible doesn't say someone can't do something. Then don't automatically tell them not to do it, but show them through wisdom. This may not be the best use of your time, of your money, of your talents, of any resources that God has given you. You may be an unwise steward right now. Maybe not unjust, but just unwise. But if we're trying to be all that we can be in Christ, then we don't even want to make unwise decisions. We don't want to make unwise use of God's resources. So always be praying about that. Always be praying about how we use what God has given us. And if we're being wise or if we're investing our resources in things that are actually weighing us down and stopping us from walking this Christian walk correctly. Be humble. Whether you're trying to correct someone whether you're just going to God, whether someone is giving you correction, if you're offering advice, whatever it is, just be humble. There's nothing special with that. There's no anecdote with that or anything. Just be humble. That's, that's, you're, you're so f- close to holiness if you could just be humble because that impacts so many other things. 
So many sins come out of a lack of humility. Practice self-control, even in neutral areas. So I remember listening to a sermon by uh, John MacArthur, and he mentioned, if you know him, you know he's fit. He used to be an athlete. He you know, was going to go play in the NFL until he um, you know, felt that he should be uh, pastoring. And he says that sometimes he'll just eat dinner and he'll decide not to have dessert. Not because he thinks his body can't handle it because he knows he's in shape and he takes care of himself. It's just so that he can show his body who's boss. And that he can say, no matter what urges come, I have the power to say no to anything I want when I want. I can have my favorite thing in front of me and I can say no to it. So when you don't have to say no, it's easy to build up that, that strength and that self-control. Don't try to summon it when the ultimate temptation is in front of you. And then you try to reach for the self-control that you never exercise. But build it up in these areas where they're neutral. You don't even need to. It's fine doing this thing, but you know, I'm not going to do it. Just, just to make sure that I can control my impulses, I can control my time, my energy, and my focus. So, In this here that started off as Jesus, what looked like Jesus seeing some dirty feet and not wanting dirty feet at the dinner table, turned into this great spiritual lesson thanks to Peter speaking up. And we see that there's a huge difference in how we look at salvation and sanctification And in our sanctification, we have to do a lot of work. Now, all of these things that I just mentioned will be worthless if we weren't believers. All of these things will be worthless. You can say no to things. You can try to find everything in the Bible where it says don't do and you cannot do them. But if you weren't saved, it wouldn't mean anything. This started off with Jesus making a distinction and saying he who has bathed is completely clean. Only needs to wash his feet. That's an encouragement, but it's also a warning. And so some people, when they looked at the bulletin and saw the title, they chuckled and some laughed a little more than chuckling. Um, That's okay. But um, I want this to be memorable. I want us to really think about this. It's not just about Jesus setting an example by washing his feet, but Jesus was teaching that even though you have been cleansed, you have been washed by the blood, there's still work for you to do. But that work is energized by the Holy Spirit and not something you have to do on your own. So whenever you want to rest and be comfortable in your salvation, just hear Jesus saying, but them feet though. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God, we just want to thank you for the truth of your word. We want to thank you, God, for you cleansing us, something that we couldn't do. Lord, we were defiled and we were in darkness, but you brought us into light and you cleansed us, you washed us, you freed us 
from bondage to sin. And we want to thank you for that, God. And as your word said, it is our reasonable, logical, spiritual service to pursue holiness, to constantly wash our feet. I pray that you give us the power, you give us the desire, and Lord, you would help us to always remember these dual truths, encouragement in our salvation, and a warning while not truly pursuing sanctification. And Lord, as we go into our time, special time of communion with you, we pray that you would just be with us and you would be working in our hearts, God, and that you would let your truth just uh, reside in us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, um, we're going to have our time of the Lord's table, and I'm actually going to invite the ushers to come forward now.